Speeding across the waves on a San Francisco Bay ferry, isolated is probably not the word you'd use to describe your situation. Immediately to port is one of the world's most famous and beautiful skylines. The Embarcadero in the foreground, Telegraph Hill and Coit Tower rising up behind it, the Presidio and Golden Gate Bridge in the distance. To starboard is the almost unbelievably long span of the Bay Bridge, leading to the skyscrapers of Oakland and Berkeley's hillside campus. With the exception of the parkland of Marin County to the north, you're surrounded on all sides by a massive urban center. And yet, as you travel, you'll pass a very visible reminder of just how isolated a place can be even in the midst of so many people. In fact, if you're on a ferry in the bay, odds are pretty good you might be headed to visit it. The mystique of Alcatraz is, in large part, that it stands apart from the city. It's within clear visual range and earshot of the tourist hordes of Fisherman's Wharf, which must have made imprisonment there even that much crueler of a sentence. At less than a mile from shore, nearly every inmate must have daydreamed about attempting to swim away, but cold temperatures, strong currents, and the potential of shark attacks meant that escaping was borderline impossible. Following the closing of the prison, the island was reclaimed by the Indians of All Tribes organization, who no doubt chose it in part because of the difficulty the government would face in removing them. So while getting to Alcatraz is a simple matter of a short boat trip today, much of its history, and before that, the lives of the animals and plants that lived there, was shaped by its remoteness. The isolation resulting from the bay's geography and how different species, including ours, have overcome those barriers is a recurring theme in the human and natural history of the Bay Area. And while Alcatraz might be the most famous, and certainly the most visited, manifestation of this isolation, this is a story best told by its larger neighbor, an island whose pockets of buildings and jumbled ecosystems were shaped by natural barriers and by the evolutionary and technological solutions that made crossing them possible. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the long-delayed finale of the podcast's second season. I'd intended to release this at the beginning of March, but I postponed it for the best possible reason. For the first time since 2020, I had the chance to travel beyond a short drive from home. I spent a few days in the Bay Area, in large part to do some research at Berkeley, but also to make the most of a badly needed spring break. Among the things I was able to do was make the trip to Angel Island, about three miles north of San Francisco. It had been on my to-do list for a long time, so thanks to a free Saturday and some perfect weather, I spent the better part of a day exploring the island. It's a beautiful place, with ridiculous views out across the bay and the Golden Gate, and, in the spring when I was fortunate enough to visit, a riot of colorful wildflowers. It's also historically and ecologically fascinating, if at times heartbreaking, and just like Alcatraz, its story has been shaped by its isolation. In this episode, we'll cross the small but significant marine barrier to explore how remoteness affects the evolution of island-living species, as well as how that evolution has played out at other sites in and around the Bay Area. But before digging down into the natural history, we'll begin at the surface, with some of Angel Island's recent human history, to see how, just as at Alcatraz, people saw an opportunity in the cold, swirling currents surrounding the island and acted on that opportunity to tragic effect.
At just under a mile from the Marin County town of Tiburon, China Cove on the north coast of Angel Island is deceptively close to the mainland. At many points, including Ayala Cove where ferries arrive, the distance is even shorter, but as with so many places in San Francisco Bay, distance isn't the crucial factor. As tides rise and fall twice a day, huge amounts of water pass through the narrow gap. The resulting currents create a formidable natural barrier, and in the early 20th century, the U.S. government saw great value in barriers, especially in a port as active as San Francisco. The name China Cove references the huge numbers of Asian immigrants that passed through the Golden Gate, drawn by the same lures that entice people from across the globe to California. Opportunity, jobs, and the gold mines of the Sierra Nevada foothills. In 1910, the cove was set aside as an immigration station to process these immigrants. On paper, this made Angel Island the West Coast equivalent of Ellis Island, a gateway into America for the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. In reality, though, it would become more of a prison than a portal. Its location on the Pacific meant that it was mainly Asian immigrants that passed through the station, and for most of these arrivals, Angel Island would be the first of many places where they would get a major cold shoulder from their new country. The gold rush of the 1840s had brought in prospectors and miners from every corner of our world, including thousands of people, predominantly men, from China. Social pressure and xenophobic lawmakers marginalized these Chinese immigrants, forcing them into undesirable jobs like railroad building. Racism and marginalization culminated in anti-Chinese riots in many Western cities, and in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which forbade any immigration from China. With the seemingly minor loopholes allowing skilled laborers and the descendants of men already in the U.S. That second loophole became a lot bigger when San Francisco was rocked by the Great Earthquake of 1906, which destroyed its immigration records and made it a lot harder to prove that a new arrival wasn't the child or grandchild of a naturalized immigrant. The weakening of the Exclusion Act lowered one barrier, but the Angel Island Immigration Station raised new ones. When ships from Asia, and a few from elsewhere in the world, debarked their passengers there, it was to a port that, thanks to its island location, was as effective a natural prison as Alcatraz. In its 30 years of operation, half a million people arrived at the station. Nearly half of these, largely from China and Japan, were detained for weeks to months, and many of these would eventually be deported. The largest two buildings still standing at the site represent the two main rationales for detention. On the east side of the ravine leading inland from China Cove is the newly remodeled hospital, where immigrants were tested for potentially dangerous infections, particularly by the hookworm parasite. As the exhibits in the hospital make clear, not only did these examinations disproportionately target Asian immigrants, but hookworm turns out not to be particularly contagious, as even early 20th century medicine was beginning to realize. There was, at least, some public health justification for medical checks. It's harder to reconcile the function of the barracks across the ravine, where interrogations and detentions took place, with the greater good of the U.S. And yet, it was in this imposing building that the most moving expressions of Angel Island's isolation were created, and can still be seen today. Perhaps the first thing you'll notice as you walk through the barracks is how strictly segregated they were. Asian and European immigrants were kept in separate sections of the building, 
and the European section is notably smaller. This is in part because there were simply not as many arrivals from Europe, but it's also the case that these immigrants were detained for short periods of time, if at all. The Chinese Exclusion Act, which shamefully remained in effect until 1943, meant that processing arrivals from China took a long time, and the Asian barracks are massive to accommodate all these detainees. The residents had limited access to outdoors exercise yards, and had rudimentary recreation facilities in the barracks. The displays there today suggest that mahjong was an especially popular pastime. But it doesn't take much imagination to recognize how little relief these must have offered to the detainees. Just glance out the barred windows overlooking the lush vegetation of the ravine and the bright blue waters of China Cove, and remember that one of the country's largest cities is just a short boat trip away, and you can appreciate just how trapped and frustrated the residents must have felt. But as it happens, you don't need to just imagine how they must have reacted to their imprisonment, because there's a heart-rendingly permanent record of those reactions all around you. China has an ancient literary tradition, and while we usually associate arts like calligraphy and poetry with media such as ink and brushes, the poets of Angel Island had to rely on less traditional, but perhaps more permanent, tools for practicing that tradition. In place of paper and scrolls, many detainees carve characters directly onto the walls of the barracks, and many of these poems are still visible nearly a century later. They're clear enough that, if you know your Chinese characters, they're still quite readable. If, like me, you don't read Chinese, you'll have to rely on the translations provided by Angel Island State Park. But even in another language, the emotions flowing from isolation on the island are unmistakable. Sadness and melancholy are, unsurprisingly, common themes. In the quiet of night, I heard, faintly, the whistling of wind. The forms and shadows saddened me. Upon seeing the landscape, I composed a poem. The floating clouds, the fog, darken the sky. The moon shines faintly as the insects chirp. Other poems express anger. Imprisoned in the wooden building day after day, my freedom withheld, how can I bear to talk about it? I look to see who is happy, but they only sit quietly. I am anxious and depressed and cannot fall asleep. While it would be a stretch to call any of the poems uplifting, there are a few that reflect the determination of the writer and serve as advice and encouragement for future detainees. With laws as harsh as tigers, I had a taste of all the barbarities. Do not forget this day when you land ashore. Push yourself ahead and do not be lazy or idle. Despite the hardships and cruelties of the Angel Island Immigration Station, many immigrants did persevere. Despite the Exclusion Act, huge numbers of Chinese immigrants did make it to the mainland, and Chinese Americans have helped shape the modern Bay Area that so many of us know and love. San Francisco's iconic Chinatown, for example, with its Hutong-style streets and labyrinth of groceries, tea houses, restaurants, and shops, is one of the city's cultural treasures, and it's been copied on a smaller scale up and down the West Coast. Alliance with China during World War II finally put an end to the Exclusion Act, but not to the use of Angel Island as a detention center. While the immigration station closed in 1940, it would see life again during the war as one of the sites where Japanese Americans were imprisoned, as were prisoners of war from the European theater, all of whom left their own writings on the barracks walls. Fortunately, this was the last case in which the U.S. used the island's natural barriers as prison walls. In 1954, much of the island was handed over to the state of California, 
who still administers it as a park today. The beautiful natural scenery it preserves stands in stark contrast to its human history in the first half of the 20th century. But this scenery was shaped by the same isolating forces that made it such an effective detention center. unlikely to see Angel Island's iconic resonant in the flesh, no matter how keen your eyes are. If you drop into the visitor center in Ayala Cove, you can see a small diorama featuring the species in taxidermied form, and you'll find stickers and plushies of it while browsing the Angel Island Conservancy's shop for souvenirs of your visit. If you keep a sharp watch out in the island's grassier areas, you may spot the piles of dirt it's created as it digs its holes. Like its mainland relatives, the Angel Island Mole spends its entire life underground, but just because it stays out of sight doesn't mean it should stay out of your mind as you hike around the island. This little insectivore is Angel Island's one and only endemic, an organism found nowhere else on Earth. Better-known examples of island endemics include the lemurs of Madagascar, the kiwis of New Zealand, and the giant tortoises that gave the Galapagos their name. The Angel Island Mole may lack these animals' fame, but it illustrates the same important concept that's been central to biology since the very beginning of the field. While being trapped on an island can be nightmarish for our species, that same isolation can act as an engine for evolution. When melting glaciers raised the level of the world's oceans at the end of the last ice age, Angel Island and anything on it became cut off from the mainland. As we'll see, this wasn't a big problem for many plants and animals, but for moles, even the narrowest of channels around the island was an insurmountable barrier. Today, they differ notably from their relatives in Marin County or San Francisco in their larger size, more robust bodies, and darker fur. This is probably the result of the phenomenon known to evolutionary biologists as genetic drift. When the waters rose around Angel Island, the moles trapped there would have been a random sample of the larger Bay Area mole population that contained a higher-than-usual percentage of genes coding for bigger, darker individuals, a legacy that was passed down to their descendants. But isolation can cause even more profound evolutionary change. Island endemics can no longer breed and exchange genes with mainland populations, meaning that they can start to evolve along a completely independent trajectory. Even slight differences between the island and mainland environment can lead to profound differences given enough time. This is why, for example, the Channel Islands further south along the California coast are home to species of fox and jay, and at one point even tiny mammoths, that are similar to, but notably different from, their relatives just across the Santa Barbara Channel. In geological and evolutionary terms, the Angel Island Mole has only recently split off from its mainland ancestors, and it hasn't changed to the point where it can yet be considered a completely separate species. 
but it may be that it represents the early stages of the evolution of an entirely unique island species. Perhaps after thousands of generations of isolation and breeding, the moles of Angel Island will become so different from the smaller, lighter-colored moles of the mainland that they'll become a true endemic species. In many island systems, including the Channel Islands, this would make them one of several endemics that originated thanks to the natural barriers formed by the ocean. On Angel Island, though, the mole is alone in its uniqueness. So why does the rest of the ecosystem look so similar to what you'd find in the hills around Marin County? The answer lies not only in the geography of the island itself, but in the impenetrability, or lack thereof, of the watery barriers surrounding it. much time in the hills of California, the plants, animals, and fungi you pass on the trails of Angel Island will seem very familiar. With the exception of the mole, every species you see will be indistinguishable from its mainland counterpart. On the shaded, wetter north side of the island, you can wander through oak forests much like those that gave their name to Oakland across the bay. The flowering shrubs on the more exposed, drier south side might look at home in the Hollywood Hills or the Big Sur. In short, you're walking through a small chunk of the Chaparral, a uniquely Californian ecosystem consisting of a mix of open woodlands and scrubland that runs from Baja to Redding and from the Sierra Nevada foothills to the coast. But if you spent time in the Chaparral, you may start to notice that some things seem to be missing. There are, for example, no venomous snakes or any predator larger than a coyote. And while you'll come across a few individual redwoods, the dense stands that you can see elsewhere along the northern coast are notably absent despite the fact that Muir Woods, one of the region's most magnificent redwood forests, lies just over a ridge clearly visible from the island's shores. Playing around with the citizen science app iNaturalist, I came up with some remarkably consistent numbers showing that the Angel Island flora and fauna are a subset, not a microcosm, of the chaparral. All the groups I looked at, plants or animals, insects or mammals, had somewhere between 1 20th and 1 4th the number of species on Angel Island as it compared to the Marin County mainland. This pattern of having low numbers of species on an island is exactly what any ecologist would have told you to expect. A series of groundbreaking experiments in the 50s by Robert MacArthur and E.O. Wilson laid the foundations of island biogeography, a theory that explains why islands tend to have fewer species than the mainland. Two factors stood out as especially important the size of the island, and its distance from the shore. The smaller and more remote an island is, the fewer species it will harbor. The Channel Islands, for example, have only a handful, or less on some islands, of native mammal species, while the tiny crag of southeast Farallon, separated from the San Francisco shore by miles of turbulent ocean, has a meager two, both of them bats. Why might this be the case? A larger island has less physical space, which could be a problem for any species that patrols a large territory. Cougars, a species absent on Angel Island, tend to have ranges at least 20 times the size of the island. Probably more importantly, small islands have fewer resources and contain fewer patches where unique environments can form. Redwoods, like those at Muir Woods, for example, thrive in cool, foggy, and damp areas where they can gather enough water to survive. If Angel Island were larger, 
It might have more valleys sufficiently shielded from the sun and prone to fogginess where these gigantic trees could take root. But it doesn't, and they don't. And without redwoods, you also don't get the array of animals, plants, and fungi that depend on them to survive. Distance from the mainland is the simpler factor governing island diversity to understand. For many organisms, saltwater is as significant a barrier as it is to our species. It takes freak events, being washed out to sea in a storm, living in a tree that happens to fall into the ocean and float to an island shore, being carried and accidentally dropped by a bird, to get these species to an island. These events may sound absurd, but they've been documented time and again in a little simple math, including some done by no less an authority than Charles Darwin, shows that they're enough to populate even the most distant of islands given enough time. At Angel Island, a stone's throw from the mainland, it's a lot easier to get species across the water. This is especially true for species that have evolved means of crossing water. Many plants are pollinated by wind or flying insects, and their seeds can be spread on the fur, feathers, or through the digestive tracts of animals, making getting to and surviving on Angel Island a straightforward enough process. This is why you can spot the same wildflowers growing here that you would find on the headlands on either side of the Golden Gate Bridge. The same goes for any animal that's a good swimmer. Deer, for example, though some of the herd living on the island today were likely introduced by would-be hunters. And for flying animals, the small channel between Tiburon and Angel Island is no barrier at all. Birds, bats, and insects tend to be among the first animals to colonize even the most remote of islands, either because they flew there intentionally or because it's not unusual for any of these animals to be blown off course in a storm. For birds in particular, the isolation of islands can be a major plus, since it protects them from land-based predators. While plenty of birds nest on Angel Island, the most enduring testimony to this preference for protected spots is the name Alcatraz. The word Alcatraces comes from Arabic by way of Spanish, and while modern Spanish speakers would use it to refer to gannets, when Juan Manuel de Ayala gave the island its European name in 1775, he likely meant it to refer to the pelicans that nested there. Seabirds still make their home on the rock. You can see their nesting grounds if you give yourself some extra time after your prison tour to walk the Agave Trail to the south end of the island. Just be aware that it's closed during the nesting season to protect the young birds. Seabirds also flock to the far more remote Farallons, where the only major land-based threats to their eggs are the mice brought there by a species whose ingenuity and ability to overcome natural obstacles have made them a potent ecological force on islands around the world. Us.
In a valley behind the Ayala Cove Visitor Center is a grove of trees of a type that's central to modern Bay Area ecology and cultural identity. They've cropped up again and again in works of art celebrating the California lifestyle, and it's hard to imagine the Central Coast without them. But like so many people who live there, the stately, pale trees crowned with canopies of sickle-shaped leaves aren't originally from California. Eucalyptus are native to Australia, half a world away, and they came to Angel Island not in a bird's gut, by wafting on the breeze, or even by being carried by ocean currents. They came with immigrants in the hold of a ship. Specifically, they came during the 19th century gold rush that shaped so much of San Francisco's history. We've already seen how many of the 49ers were Chinese, but a huge number were also Australian, and when they passed through the Golden Gate, they brought a little piece of their home with them. The California Chaparral is remarkably similar to the scrubland of Australia's south and west, and while the miners themselves generally met with failure in the Sierra Nevada foothills, the eucalyptus they brought with them exploded around the bay. Similar stories are common in the coastal areas of the world, from the mongoose of Hawaii to the cane toads and rabbits introduced in the eucalyptus homeland. These transoceanic leaps were all made possible by the same technology. Californian author John Steinbeck made the case that it might be humanity's most significant invention, and it's hard to disagree. Shipbuilding is certainly one of our species' oldest skills, and when our first ancestor set out in a raft or floating log, it forever changed our relationship with islands. No longer inaccessible, they became new territories to explore and treasure troves of resources. On Angel Island, it was the Coast Miwok who first took advantage of these opportunities using their ingenious Thule Reed canoes and leaving behind evidence of camps in the island's bays, including both China and Ayala Coves. But it was the namesake of this second body of water whose arrival coincided with a true sea change in the relationship between people, their boats, and islands. The San Carlos, Juan Manuel de Ayala's packet boat, was the product of the European wooden shipbuilding tradition. Similar boats were central to the early growth of San Francisco, transporting Spanish colonists, then hordes of hopeful gold miners, then forming the basis of the merchant fleet that made the city the great port of the Pacific coast. You can explore this history on the mainland across from Angel Island, where San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park traces the city's past through its boats. The square rigger Balclutha and the schooners C.A. Thayer and Alma are relics from the final flourishing of wind-powered travel in the late 19th century, while the impressively massive steam engine at the turn of the century tugboat Hercules shows what was on the horizon. New and faster ways of powering ships meant that our species could now access every bit of land on the planet more quickly than had previously been imagined, leading to a boom in global trade and a series of ecological crises. California's eucalyptus are a great example of the problems global movement brings about. Without any native predators to eat them, there was little to slow the spread of these Australian arrivals. At first glance, this might not seem so bad, it's easy to appreciate their beauty and their lovely aroma on a stroll through the Ayala Cove Grove. But they're also great at outcompeting native plants for resources like water, nutrients, and even light. And, as it turns out, they burn like matches, making an already wildfire-prone environment even more of a tinderbox. Eucalyptus were introduced to Angel Island and the rest of the Bay Area well over a century ago. But as climate warms and as the risk of major burns increases in California, the effects of some Australian miner's decision to plant a little piece of his old home in his new one are being felt more keenly than ever. One of the tragedies of island ecology 
is that our species' ability to move ourselves, and versatile species like eucalyptus, rats, and mosquitoes, across oceans, developed long before the development of scientific tools to understand the effects of that movement. But in a few rare cases, an island remains undiscovered or remote enough that it remains relatively free of introduced species, making them important natural laboratories. And one of the best examples lies far closer to a major population center than you might expect, just a few miles northwest of the Golden Gate. Nearly all of the world's islands had been charted and described in detail by 1853, when George Davidson of the U.S. Coast Survey found himself socked in by the famously dense California fog. As he attempted to determine whether he'd drifted towards a safe harbor or a dangerous shoal, he stumbled upon something entirely unexpected, a previously unknown island. Even the coast Miwok, who were certainly familiar with the diversity of marine life living around its edges, had never set eyes on the island itself despite its location less than 20 miles off of Tamal Huye, better known today as Point Reyes. In fact, neither Davidson nor Edward Cordell, the German revolutionary and hydrographer for whom it would eventually be named, ever saw the island either. Because Cordell Bank is not your normal island. Rather than rising above the waves, it tops out 20 fathoms below them. In the words of Robert Schmieder, the ecologist who made a career out of studying the bank, it's an underwater island, with the deep Pacific on one side and the shallower but churning waters of the central coast on the other. But even this most unusual of islands follows the rules of island ecology. The organisms that live here are subsets of the ecosystems elsewhere on the coast, with particular similarities to the Farallon Islands to the south, and a seemingly random distribution of species swept out to sea from the mainland. Like other islands, conditions on Cordell Bank can be very different from those in nearby areas, leading to evolutionary and ecological oddities. Light is especially important on the bank. The abnormally clear waters allow marine algae, and all the animals that depend on them, to live much deeper than they normally could. Many shallow water species have been recorded at their greatest known depth at Cordell Bank, interacting with deeper ocean organisms that they might never otherwise encounter. Unless you're an experienced diver on a research expedition, you're unlikely to experience this mashup of marine life in person, but you can get a sense of the diversity of this sunken island onshore. The California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park contains an aquarium featuring a small sample of Cordell Bank animals. You can experience a more complete, though admittedly less alive, sample at the Oakland Museum of California, where a stunning video installation by artist Olivia Ting features residents of the bank ranging from plankton to humpback whales. Either experience illustrates the uniqueness of the island's ecosystems, underscores how important they are, and hints at how much we can learn from them. In recognition of these facts, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, declared Cordell Bank a national marine sanctuary in 1989. Today, the sanctuary is just one of a string of NOAA-run marine protected areas running from Point Arena in the north to the Big Sur in the south, 
and that before long may stretch even further to connect with the reserves around the Channel Islands. Cordell Bank is just one of many biodiversity hotspots along this coastline. In fact, the seas here are some of the richest in life of any on our planet. This richness is the product of the same force that accounts for the clarity of the bank's waters, a force that, like so many in and around the Bay Area, operates on a scale so huge that it's hard to conceptualize, but that is inextricably connected to life at sea, on land, and even in the heart of California's cities. We'll explore these forces and the fingerprints they leave on the Golden State's organisms and ecosystems when Voyages returns this summer for its third season. Thanks for joining me on this voyage across the barrier. Thanks to travel and teaching, this season two finale has been delayed, but I hope it was worth the wait. I'll be spending part of my summer exploring the California coast and the stories it tells, and I plan to be back on the air to tell you about it in July. If you want to get a preview of some of the places and topics I'll be covering, follow me on Facebook or Instagram at VoyagePod, where I'll be posting weekly updates. And as always, you can catch up on old destinations on Voyage's website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can also learn about the music featured in each episode and contact me with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions you might have. I hope you've enjoyed Season 2's world tour of the fossils of Texas, the Victorian remnants of the British Empire, the scars of the inland northwest's great floods, the intertwined natural and cultural wonders of the Valley of Mexico, the heavily touristed sounds of Switzerland, and now the islands of California. If you have, please help me grow my audience in advance of our next series of journeys by rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice. And, of course, by telling a friend. Thanks for joining me today and throughout Season 2. I hope you'll join me again in a few months for Season 3, and for all the voyages to come.